0: This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. Uh, Tonight is the final RUF, regular RUF of the semester. Um, which means this is, this is my final time preaching to you in this room. And um, this is a really sweet space for me. Um, let's see, you should keep a cry counter at Mary Clark, if I can get through it. Um, I remember when we first, uh, so when I first got to Wake Forest, just under seven years ago, we, uh, we met in Pew Auditorium. Which, if you ever spend any time in Pew, you know it's, it, I mean, it's named poorly. Sorry if your last is Pew. Um, but it's also just a, not a great space. Um, uh, the acoustics are awful for what we do in RUF, and students are like, we should do RUF in the green room. Because um, they've done it occasionally in here, and through having favor with the university, like, student groups aren't allowed to meet in here. And through favor with the university, um, a woman who is retiring like put us into the system as she retired. And so we have the green room um, and continue to have favor with the university in um, booking this room. And it has been one of the great joys of the past, I guess we've been in this room for, I guess COVID we weren't in here, but for a long time of singing with you in here. Um, The acoustics in this room are so amazing and hearing your voices uh, sing together is just one of the great delights um, for me. Um, and I just want to uh, tell you a couple of things. Um, uh, well, first, I love you a lot. Um, this, these past seven years have been a unique privilege in my life, and I just want to thank you for the privilege of serving you as your campus minister. And um, y'all and the folks who went before you, it has just been a, a, an incredible privilege. Um, so tonight, as we wrap up the semester together, we're, we're coming back into Mark um, to finish up, and I just want us to spend some time together thinking about hope. Tonight, we're going to talk about hope. Um, and just, to, to frame our conversation of hope, I want to tell you about a man named Bruno Bettelheim. Bruno Bettelheim was a leading child psychologist at the University of Chicago in the 20th century, and he was a survivor of the Holocaust. And um, much of his work as a child psychologist was taken up with the question, um, this really important question why did some people survive in the Nazi concentration camps during World War II, and why did others die? Given the horrific circumstances, why did some survive? And the answer to his thorough research was hope. Some people, when they entered into those camps, had real, steeled, indelible hope, and they therefore had the courage to face the unfaceable and survive. And what he discovered... What he discovered was that the children in the death camps who had been read the true Brothers Grimm fairy tales when they were kids, these children had been taught that someday you may be thrown into an oven, someday a wolf may come to your door, but in the face of these impossible odds, there is an unstoppable force in the universe that is there to support you. And if you keep going, you'll discover that faith, that courage to go on. What he discovered was that people whose imaginations were shaped by stories that told the true story of the world, they then had the mental scaffolding to buttress and withstand the forces of evil and despair of life. They had real hope. I love the story of Bettelheim because it brings our attention to this ever-present need of hope. True and solid hope that the only way that you and I will not be crushed by the immensity of suffering and loss in this life is if our imaginations are sufficiently furnished with hope. So what is hope? Simple definition of hope. Hope is confident expectation for the future. Hope is a confident expectation for the future. Now, I know that many of you in this room and many of your friends and classmates on campus live on the edge, live on the edge of hopelessness. Your hope, at best, is tied to your performance or your achievement, so it's tied to your grades or your appearance or your job prospects. In addition to that, we, the media bombards us with this um, our national political theater that has taught us to regard any offer of true hope with skepticism. We've, we've learned to be skeptical that it's probably just a power play. Friends, I want you to hear tonight that God offers you a true and solid hope that is not contingent on your performance. It is not tied to your circumstances. It has real power to carry you through the tragedies of this world. And as we look at the end of Mark's gospel together tonight, I want us to see two things. Um, First, we're gonna look at the the tragedy of hopelessness and then the power of a solid hope. So we're gonna read Mark 16, verses one through eight. And if you have a Bible and you're opening there, you'll notice that uh, the, chapter 16 actually continues on. And there's some bracketed um, words there saying that the original manuscripts don't, involve, don't include verses 9 through 20. And so just what's going on with that, if you're reading your Bible, like why is this here? Um, scholars have the earliest manuscripts we have of Mark's gospel, like it's like the bottom of the page was torn off. Um, they're missing what happens after verse eight. But then you have later manuscripts that have these other verses. And so um, um, we're just gonna use verses one through eight, but that's what's going on if you see that in your Bible and you're unsure. Um, This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go, they bought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb and looking up they saw that the stone had been rolled back it was very large and entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed and he said to them don't be alarmed you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the tragedy of hopelessness. So we're at the end of Mark's Gospel, and he opens his final chapter focusing our attention on these three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam. It's Saturday night. It's after sundown. Um, so out, it's on the Sabbath. They're, they finished resting on the Sabbath. It's after sundown. They go to the store to buy spices. And just 24 hours earlier, um, they had stood at a distance and watched as the rabbi they knew as Yeshua Nazariah, Jesus of Nazareth. They watched him be whipped, mocked, stripped of his clothes, nailed to a cross and hung to die for all to see. They watched as their hope, this man in whom they had experienced the love of God in whom they placed their hope as the one who was bringing the kingdom of God with its righteousness and its justice and its peace. They watched as this man suffered and died, crying out from the cross, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after he breathed his life, breathed his, his, his last and gave up his life, he was taken down from the cross and he was taken to the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea to be buried before sundown, before the beginning of the Sabbath. Then they went to bed. And then they spent that Saturday at home with their hopes dashed. And then at sundown on Saturday at the end of the Sabbath, they went to the shop to buy spices to anoint Jesus' body. And then early on Sunday morning, as the sun rose over the horizon, Together, they walked to the cliffs where the tombs were, and Joseph's tomb, where Jesus was buried, would have been a cave carved into the rock. Because Joseph was wealthy, his tomb would have had a large stone shaped like a giant wheel that could be rolled in front of the tomb. And the women were going to the tomb to anoint Jesus, because they didn't get a chance to anoint his body on Friday. The bodies of the dead were anointed by the Jews with spices, because the decompression decomposition process smelled so bad that out of devotion and care for their loved ones, people would cover the bodies with fragrant spices to mask the stench of decay. And after a year, after the body had decomposed, the family would re-enter the tomb, remove the bones from the tomb, and give them a separate burial. So that's what these women are doing. They're coming beautifully devoted to Jesus to anoint his head and his body with spices. And as we peer into this scene, I want you to see the tragic devotion of these women. Their devotion is beautiful. It's beautiful. Their love for Jesus. Their longing to give him an anointing that that he would have the dignity of a proper burial. And yet it's deeply tragic because their hopes were dashed. The best that they could do was give respect to Jesus' body and cover up the stench of his decaying flesh. And without real hope, this is the best that we can do in this life. At best, our life's work will be devotedly covering up the stench of the tragedy of our own lives. Without real hope, the best that we can do is to develop tragedy management strategies, coping mechanisms for life in this fallen world. I think often we get hung up on living the good life, which more often than not is just our attempts to cover up and distract from or prevent the stench of tragedy. I mean, this is what our addictions and our compulsions are. They are functional for us. Like the reason for our disordered eating, our compulsive pornography use, our persistent online shopping, the reason we kill ourselves in the library and on the treadmill, why we fantasize about future romance and wealth, all of these are coping mechanisms. There are attempts to prevent or to cover up or distract ourselves from the stench of the tragedy of our lives, of life living in this broken and breaking world. We do this because we lack the character to live with the deep disappointments of our lives. I mean, this is why we compulsively look for the silver lining to to make the tragedy of this life a little more bearable, a little less hopeless. This morning, I was trying to share my sadness about leaving Winston-Salem with a guy at the gym, and he just stonewalled me. He said, it's a new chapter. Look forward to it. Like, true. This chapter is coming to a close. um, And I'm really sad that this chapter is coming to a close because I love this chapter so much. It feels, what it feels like, I thought about this today, what it feels like, it feels like getting to the end of a really good book and knowing you're nearing the last page. I remember the first time I read The Lord of the Rings, um, and I cried as I finished because I missed Samwise Gamgee, um, that was a really nerdy reference, but it feels kind of like that, like I'm sad because I love this chapter so much, like I love y'all so much, I love our work here so much, um, And while I'm so excited for the next chapter, I wish that I could keep both books open. Mary Landon, um, who's here tonight, does this this thing where she reads two books at the same time and uses one as a bookmark for the other um, so she can go back and forth. And and that's what I want to do. Or she used to do that, right? You used to do that. You don't do that anymore, Mary Landon. Um, But that's what I want to do. I want to be able to to go back and forth between the books. Um, And friends, without real hope, the best that I can do is devote myself to covering up and distracting myself or ignoring the stench of the tragedy of my life. Hear me on this, y'all are not a tragedy. But without real hope, I have to treat this transition like a stoic because the pain is too much to bear otherwise. And some of us dress up our tragedy management projects in religious clothing. Like these women, While your devotion may be beautiful, um, it can be deeply tragic. Now, what do I mean when I say you, you dress it up in religious clothing? For some of you, your faith is in the achievement category. You're working hard to be a good Christian. And regardless of whether or not you can see it, there's this intensity about your religious devotion that creates a culture of pressure around you. And this is deeply tragic because it's built on your performance It feels like everything is up to you. It hangs on your shoulders. Your Christian life stresses you out. This is tragic. Here's the thing. When these women arrive at the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, they are confronted with reality, and it terrifies them. They arrive at the tomb expecting to find a decaying body, and instead the the stone is rolled away, and they enter the tomb, and they are met by an angel in flowing white robes, and our translations say that they were alarmed, but a better translation is they were freaking out. Um, this is the same word that's used to describe Jesus's agony when he's sweating blood in the garden before he goes to the cross. And this angel says to them, don't freak out. You're looking for Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has, he has been raised, he is not here. Friends, the resurrection changes everything. It alone has the power to transform your life from a hopeless tragedy into a glorious story of redemption. Leslie Newbegin, Leslie who was a British missionary and pastor in the 20th century, um, at the end of his life, he was giving an interview and was asked if he was an optimist or a pessimist. And he responded, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Okay, you might be thinking, this is crazy. You're saying... Uh, Christians believe that a first century Jewish man named Jesus died, and then three days later he came back to life. How can anyone actually believe this story? And if that's what you're thinking tonight, I'm really glad you're here. And I want you to consider this. If there is a God who made all things, the earth, the solar system, the universe, all that fills it, plants, animals, humans, and this God wanted to communicate with the people that he created about who he was, Um, This this God, who's all-powerful, wanted to communicate, he could communicate any way that he wanted to. And the Christian faith stakes its claim that this is how he has done it, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now while you might write this story off because it's too hard to believe that this happened in history, which I totally get because we live in an age that is skeptical of historical claims, but here's the thing. Every good story that you have ever loved Bears the mark of this story. G.K. Chesterton, who's a 19th century British intellectual, he wrote, Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. This is why you love stories of redemption, because they're more than true. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking with a friend who works for RUF, and um, he was, we are talking about this sermon and what I should say to y'all my last sermon, and he said, tell them whatever you want. So I want to take a few minutes and tell you whatever I want. Um, Here's what I want to leave you with. God is at work. He is at work bringing his resurrection life to bear as far as the curse is found. Into your real tragedy, regardless if you are even able to acknowledge it exists. There is real hope for you in Jesus Christ. The hope of the resurrection has fueled the faith of God's people since the beginning. In the oldest book of the Bible, Job, Job asks, if a man dies, will he live again? He knows that death is permanent and that once he dies, he won't be able to give account for his life. His sin will keep him endlessly trapped in death because the only viable payment for sin is death. Job knew that the only possible solution to sin and death is resurrection. This is why he declared with complete confidence. He said, even after my sin, my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. He didn't know how God would do it, but he knew deep down in his heart that God would raise him from the dead. Job knew that the resurrection was the only solution to the problem of evil. Great King David's greatest hope was in the resurrection. When he's saying, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And he knew that the hope of the resurrection rested on the promised Messiah, the one who would sit on his throne forever. The prophet Hosea proclaimed that the resurrection is proof of God's love. Isaiah saying that the resurrection is the key to God's new creation. Chapter 26 he, he writes your dead will live. Such what we just sang. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy for your due is the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Ezekiel <coughs> prophesied that the resurrection would come with the new covenant. That God was going to do something new. And he would begin a resurrection in our hearts, and that he would complete that resurrection so that his people one day would live without the possibility of tragedy, both inside and out. And the prophet Daniel wrote that the resurrection is the culmination of human history. And the witness of the entire New Testament is that the resurrection is the cornerstone of our hope. 1 Corinthians 15 says If Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. With Job, the New Testament says the resurrection is the solution to the problem of evil. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. With David, the New Testament says the resurrection is dependent on the Messiah. Romans 8 says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. With Hosea... The New Testament says the resurrection is proof of God's love. And then 2 Corinthians 5 says he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come. With Isaiah, the New Testament says the resurrection is the key to the new creation. In Romans 6, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. With Ezekiel, the New Testament says the resurrection comes with the new covenant. And finally, in Revelation 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. With Daniel, the New Testament Claims and says and sings as loudly as it can that the resurrection is the culmination of human history. Here's what this means for you. First, you cannot sabotage the kingdom of God. You cannot sabotage the kingdom of God. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1 says, the one who began a good work in you will see it to completion. The resurrection is proof of this. You cannot sabotage the kingdom of God. You can't sabotage God's work in your life. You just can't do it. I know how much anxiety you feel and concern about screwing up your life, and you just can't do it. He began your salvation before the foundation of the earth, and it will be completed at that great day. He staked his life on it. Jesus has been raised. You will be raised to him. You cannot sabotage the kingdom of God. And second, redemption is better than perfection. By the power that raised Jesus from the dead, God frees you from having to hold everything together. You are free. You're actually completely free to lean into the future hope that God is the author of your story and that he himself will wipe every Tragedy bought tear from your eye. Friends, the gospel is the true story of the world. Jesus actually lived the life that you should have lived, and he actually died the death that you deserve. And by faith, all of his righteousness, all that belongs to him, is actually yours. And this is what the women encountered when they encountered the empty tomb they walked into that dark cave expecting it to stink. And met this angel who said to, the him, said to them, he is not here, he has been raised. This is the real hope for your future. So in six weeks, um, we are uh, we're packing up. The moving vans are coming and we're going to Nashville. Um, and uh, I know some of you can't imagine what next semester will feel like. Um, you're sad, you're distressed. Some of you don't really care and that's totally fine. Um, Others of you uh, um, do. Um, And I want to leave you with this. In verse 7, the angel said to the woman, he said to them, which, by the way, um, this is in my notes because I didn't know where to put it, but this is really important. There's something really beautiful that Jesus, the the resurrection account, is given to women. Because women in the first century, um, in the first century culture, their testimony was inadmissible in court. Um, So their voice didn't count. Um, And by giving them the good news of the gospel and writing it into our scriptures, like nobody would make this up. This is so absurd in a first century uh, mindset. Like this is the goodness of Jesus. He delights in women. Um, The God of the Bible elevates women and cares deeply about them, puts them at the center of his story of redemption. The angel says to the women, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Here's what I ask of you. Two things. Trust and tell. Trust the things he has told you. Trust his promises. He's good for them. You can take them to the bank. The tomb is empty. Nobody in 2,000 years has found a body. They look all the time. Every Easter, pay attention. There are going to be some new special about people saying they found the body. No one's found the body 2,000 years. The tomb is empty. The gospel is true. What God has done in Jesus Christ, what God is doing, he's actually at work right now building his kingdom in our midst and around the world. And what God will do, Jesus Christ will return. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will destroy death and sin once and for all, and he will make all things new. Remember, a Christian is not somebody that does great things for God. A Christian is somebody for whom God has done great things. Trust the things that Jesus has told you in his word. Trust and tell, and tell. Tell his disciples that he is going ahead of you. Tell each other about Jesus. Tell, tell each other how Jesus is doing this resurrection work in your own lives, in the midst of the tragedy of your own lives, the real hope that he's bringing. And tell each other that he's going ahead of you. The immediate future is a fog. We don't know what it holds, but we do know this. Jesus Christ is risen, and that's all we need. The cross and the resurrection is God's answer to the suffering and confusion and pain of this life. And because of the resurrection, your life and my life and our life together in the church is not a tragedy. No matter what happens, this story will have a happy ending. We're not optimists, we're not pessimists. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The logic of the resurrection is that because Jesus has defeated death, everything sad will come untrue. true. Everything sad will come untrue. Death itself began to work backwards in the resurrection. And the joy of the resurrected Jesus has the power to pull you forward out of the tomb. These women showed up in their grief with this immovable object in front of them, the stone of death. And in the place of their impossible tragedy, they are met with the awesome joy of new life. Friends, this is what Jesus has for you in himself. The hope of the resurrection is real fuel for real joy. I want, just as I'm closing... Um, I want you to think about this with me. What, what, would it, what do you think it would feel like? What would it feel like to step into God's joy and enjoy that forever? I know that this is mind-blowing, but what do you think it would feel like deep in your heart to step into this joy? I want to leave you with this image. Um, so the Braves won the World Series two weeks ago. And while I'm not a huge baseball fan, I did stay up and watch the game, watch Game 6. Um, I was a Braves fan when I was a kid and they won the World Series when I was 11. But since then, I have seen the agony of that city as the Braves have lost year after year after year after year after. Um, but the victory two weeks ago sent out shockwaves of joy and excitement. Um, this is what's so great about sports is that you don't have to play on the team to get to be in on the victory. Right? So many people who aren't baseball players were over the moon because they were caught up in this victory that somebody else practiced for, somebody else sacrificed for, someone else worked hard to win. And all the fans had to do was align themselves with the team, and then they're counted as winners. We won is a totally appropriate thing for a Braves fan to say. You can even bandwagon. You can be a Game 6 Braves fan and say we won, and it counts. All the fans had to do was align themselves with the team, and they're counted as winners. Their win brought joy and restoration to the whole city. It brought a party. And friends, this is such a picture of the gospel that Jesus wins victory and joy for his people. It's amazing. Um, But one of my friends has a buddy who went to all six of the World Series games. And on that night, on November 2nd, after the Braves won, he walked down the stadium to the security guard near the team's dugout. And he worked himself into a conversation with the security guard, told him that he went to all six games, And he wanted to go to the team celebration, and the security guard let him in. And the picture's up. So he has pictures. These are his pictures of him drinking wine out of a nice glass down there in the locker room, posing with every player, kissing the World Series trophy. Like, this is just a guy. And it's amazing, because not only did he get the credit of the victory as a fan, but he also got the joy of the celebration for something that he didn't do but was given to him as a gift. And he got to do it with the ones who won it for him. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then no matter what happens in your life, no matter what the tragedy, not only do you get credit for the victory of what Jesus did, but one day you will step into the party that will end all parties. And you will receive the joy of the celebration with Jesus who won that victory for you. It's not just a beautiful story. It's God's story. It's your story too. Christ (laughs) is risen. That is all you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of your gospel, which you give to us in your word, this certainty of the empty tomb that Jesus is not here. He is risen. Lord, thank you for these friends. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our midst by the power of your spirit to give us faith, to actually believe that this is true, to give us hope. Um, in the midst of our tragedies. Lord, would you lift our hearts um, to see you as the one who's raised for us because you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. If you want to stand up, we're going to sing one more song.